0: Well, let's pray one more time. (laughs) Daddy God, Abba Adonai, you are so good. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your son coming. The word made flesh, the Torah made flesh. Not just to show us how it's done but to make a way for us where there was no way. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here. I thank you that you already have power that flows through words that you already had created before the beginning of the world. I just invite you, Lord, to empower those words tonight, to send them out, and to cut to every one of our hearts tonight, especially mine, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. So I don't know if you have ever had this experience before where every time you look at the clock, you see a certain set of numbers, and it always shows up the same way every time. 222. So that's 5.55. Grace, grace, grace. Um, 3.33. There we go. So I always see 2.22, Um, And this has been going on for years. My wife can attest to this. Christy, um, she uh, and I talk about this and she'll even notice it, that it it just kind of happens in these sort of funny times. And, you know, even checking a folder in in my email and there's 222 messages or, you know, there's, I I look at the odometer at just the right time and the last three digits are 222 and uh, just over and over again would see this. And, it's been over the course of years where I've just been like, Lord, what is this? What are you drawing my attention to? And so I was figuring it must be Ephesians 2.22. In in him you also, him's Jesus. In, in Jesus you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'm like, that is a good one. That is so, even just like what God is speaking to this house. Yeah, okay. No, that's not what the Lord was was putting his finger on. I'm like, okay, what is it? 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 22. It's actually four twos in a row for that. And uh, when I was asking the Lord about what is it he wanted me to share tonight, I got the answer of 2.22. <laughs> and so I knew, okay, well, we're, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy. And... Before I I start to explain what's going on with that, I just want to let you know what we're going to be talking about tonight. If, If we were going to give it a title, it would be Becoming the Word. And what we're going to talk about is the fact that Jesus is the Word made flesh. And he came so that we could also be the Word made flesh. Now... I don't know if any of you are, if that's, I, I can tell some of you, it's, it's hitting you how big that is, but if, if you really let that sink in, and I believe that we can see this in Paul's last letter to Timothy, this may actually be the very last thing he wrote before he was executed. We don't know for sure, but uh, it's, as far as I can tell, it's the last thing that we have in the New Testament that Paul wrote. Um, he knows he's going to die. When he's writing it. And that's where he says, I've I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And the the reason I think this is especially pertinent is I was looking at what was going on at that time, and it's around 67 AD when Paul died, when he was executed. And what's going on? Well, the government's a mess. You got a a joker named Nero, who's the emperor of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about Nero, he was kind of a messed up dude. And uh, you know, there's that famous story of him playing the violin while Rome burned. And then he eventually blamed it on Christians. And then they crucified thousands of Christians along the Appian Way, the major roadway to Rome. But they didn't just crucify them. They covered, him, covered them in tar and set them on fire. And so this was a bad dude. And so uh, Paul, it's believed, was executed during that time, during that specific persecution of the church. So this is a time where there's major political turmoil. In fact, in Israel, it would only be three years later that the temple would be destroyed. So there's major political upheaval in Israel. There's political upheaval in the world. And of course, whenever there's political upheaval, there's economic upheaval. There's cultural upheaval. Everything is just going nuts in the world. Even though it's this most powerful empire in the world, it seems like it would make sense that everything would be pretty peaceful, at least within it, but it's not. And I just think about when I looked at the news this morning. We've got riots going on in different cities and different shootings that are gathering people's attention and so much worry and anxiety about the way the government is right now and where it's going. And... Something that I think is a parallel too is that there's an increase in persecution of the church right now. And there was an increase in persecution of the church at that time. Because before, most of the persecution of the church was happening in Israel or just the surrounding areas, the Jewish communities outside of Israel. But now, starting in the year 67, the persecution really picks up outside of Israel. It starts to spread all over the world. And so I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, wow, whatever it is that Paul had to say to Timothy, um, it, it probably applies to us even more so right now, because we see so much of that happening now. Persecution of Christians even spreading in our own country right now. And Paul was writing to Timothy about the Word. There's heresies going on at the time. In fact, there's a big controversy going on in Ephesus There are these people who've actually been excommunicated from the church, and yet they're still running around preaching, and they're doing all these lies. They're saying that uh, Jesus has either not resurrected or has already come back. There's all these different things. In fact, there's so many weird heresies coming up that Paul's actually telling Timothy, look, don't even worry about trying to argue with them. There's no substance to it. It's just a waste of your time. It just starts to get to a point where they're making stuff up. There's no way to argue with it. And I can tell you, being a student in seminary right now, reading what's going on in most of academic theology in the United States and around the world right now, it's basically the same thing. Sometimes I'm just reading stuff and I'm like, y'all are just making stuff up at this point. And, of course, they're teaching this in a place where this is preparing the future pastors, the future leaders of denominations, churches, all over the U.S. and the world. There are people who actually fly in from all over the world to take these classes and read this stuff that people are just making up. So I want to talk to you in the light of all of this, and based on what I found here in 2 Timothy, four aspects of living our identity of being the Word made flesh. Now, I read Ephesians 2.22 earlier, and even though that wasn't the primary thing I felt like the Lord was pointing to, it still applies. We are being built up as a living temple, walking the earth, containing the very presence of God, so that everywhere we go, God's already there. Now, the Holy Spirit may have already gone before us, but at the same time, we're containers of God. We contain the Holy Spirit. And I love how Bill Johnson even talks about how the Holy Spirit is just wanting to get out of unbelieving believers and he's trapped inside and so he just wants to get out. The Holy Spirit is in there and he wants to manifest his presence and his power and his love on the earth. But just like that Bill Johnson quote, unbelieving believers, we don't necessarily believe who we are. We don't necessarily believe what it is we've been sent here for, and who, who we are in terms of the word. And ultimately, and I feel like there's a, there's a parable that Jesus spoke that really puts the finger right on it. Sometimes we want things that we don't need, that we shouldn't want, and it gets right in the way of God's purposes for us. I'll just read uh, from Mark chapter 419. Jesus is actually interpreting his Parable of, I'll call it the parable of the seeds. People normally call it the parable of the sowers, the sower, or the par- But really, it could even be the parable of the soils. Uh, more than that, but Jesus is explaining the parable, and he says at one point, "This is about the seed that fell in ground that seemed good, but then the seed was choked out by other plants that were around it." And it says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Desires for other things. It's lesser loves. It's things that are taking the place of something greater that God has for us. Well, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. I told you that this was the big driver for this. Well, here's what it says. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. I'm going to stop there. That word passions, Now, I'm reading from the ESV. It might read differently in your translation. It's not passions. It's desires. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus used in Mark 4.19. It's a specific kind of desire. Most of the time you see it in the Bible, it's actually referencing stuff that we shouldn't want, sinful desires. And these are the things that choke out the word, the word in our lives. So it says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, these are the people who just, they want Jesus. They love him. He's everything to them. Their heart is pure because it's completely set on Jesus. No other lesser loves are competing for that love for Jesus. Does that mean they can't love other people? No, they love other people, but it's through that love for Jesus. Yes, they, they, they love to serve and to lay down their own lives, but it's all through loving Jesus first. Jesus is the primary love through which all the other loves are channeled. So the husbands love their wives And the wives love their husbands, but it's still through the love of Jesus. Now, I talked about our identity of being the Word made flesh. Ephesians 4.22, you're just going to get a ton of scripture here tonight. It says in Ephesians 4.22, Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. There it is again. It's desires that are lying to you. They're saying this is more important. This is more important than anything else and it's lying. It says in verse 24, put on the new self created in the likeness of God. Now we are to put on Jesus Christ but who is Jesus? He's the word made flesh. So there's something about Jesus that's very much connected to what we find in scripture. It's not just a person but here's the thing. If we don't know the person of Jesus we're missing it if we think it's just about knowing stuff from the Bible. It's not about knowing things, it's about knowing the person behind those things. But we encounter him when we read his word because he's already in it. We're actually reading him in a way. We're encou- we're, every single word is in this Bible for us to encounter Jesus. Now, later on in 2 Timothy, Paul says that there's going to be this, this point. In fact, there already are. In fact, he's talking about people who are, and I'll just read this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness while denying its power. Now, I've heard this scripture many times, and this is all in connection with these deceitful desires, this pleasure, they're looking for these deceitful desires, these lesser pleasures, because God is the highest pleasure. And if, if you haven't experienced that, this is the place for you to experience that. It's in that place of prayer and intimacy with the Lord that you are going to experience that pleasure if you haven't already. But it's shortly after that that he mentions a couple people, Janas and Jambras. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And there's something to do with Moses there. And, and I was just starting to say that I've normally heard this scripture in terms of, oh, well, these are congregations uh, where, you know, they appear godly, but they're denying the power. Oh, these are congregations that don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't operate in spiritual gifts. They don't speak in tongues. They don't do any of these things. And so that's what those are. I submit to you that's actually not what that's talking about because it mentions these two guys, Janas and Jambras, just a few verses later. These guys were the magicians over in Egypt back in Exodus. And every time that Moses would do something that the Lord told him to do, for instance, throwing his staff on the ground and it turns into a snake, it's these two jokers, Janas and Jambras, who then throw their staffs down and those turn into snakes. Now, of course, Moses' staff eats their snakes, right? Right? So there's definitely greater power, but these are guys who believe in a kind of power. There's power in what they're doing. It's just a false power. It is a deceptive power. In fact, Paul talks about them both being deceived and deceiving. In fact, I I think they're deceiving because they're deceived. They actually need to be set free themselves, and so that's why they're doing what they're doing. So I don't think this is just about congregations that deny the power of the Holy Spirit. You could be in a congregation that seems to be operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but what is the message they're preaching? What is the Jesus they're preaching? There are people out there. There are congregations out there where they're doing stuff, and it's, it's not in line with the Word of God. In fact, I don't even have to talk about Christian groups. I can tell you I've met many neo-pagans, people engaged, actively engaged in witchcraft, I I knew a guy who was a Wiccan, uh, sort of a Wiccan priest, a Wiccan, um, what's the word? Uh, Not a witch, a warlock. Yeah, and uh, I mean, he was in this, and others I've met are in this because they're looking for power. But they don't want that power to be God's power. They're looking for another power that legitimizes the way they're living. They're looking for something that will allow them to be lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And so that's where they're going for these alternate powers. So they're denying the primary power. What is the primary power? I think it's being talked about here. It's the power of a transformed life. It's the power of repentance. It's the power that I was this way and now I'm this way. I loved these things and now I love the Lord. So how do we, if we're asking this of our own selves, how do we get this to change in our own hearts. Like the, the heart is the seat of our desires. You know, Jesus said it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, that all these different desires, all these things that we want that aren't good can start coming from. And I remember as, an, as a new believer, see, before I got born again, I would tell people, well, I, I don't think I ever told anyone, but I kept thinking, I couldn't be a Christian because I want too much bad stuff. You know, I couldn't really be dedicated to God. Yeah, I, you know, I was going to church, and I called myself a Christian openly, but on the inside, I'm like, man, I, I can't be serious about this. I just, I want bad stuff, and I don't, I don't, I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> and then I remember when I got born again, and I didn't get born again because of a message about how I needed to stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff. I got born again because I was being told about Jesus, And I was being told that God would be the father that I never had. And when I started to encounter the love of the father, man, I was ruined, absolutely ruined for the love of God. And then I started to discover my desires started to change. I didn't want the bad stuff anymore. In fact... I didn't even want to want the bad stuff anymore. All I wanted was more of Jesus. And so I'm going to as many Bible studies and campus ministries as I could. I was in college at the time. I think it was like five campus ministries and three Bible studies. I'm just like, where is more Jesus can I get some more? Where is it? Then I'm, you know, researching revivals on the internet and learning about all this stuff. I was listening to Misty Edwards before I ever knew who she was or what IHOP was, Uh, and in fact, I thought years later IHOP was a cult, and then I found out, oh, wait a second, these are actually people who've impacted my life. Um, So... A key scripture I've I've looked at for that is Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And if you think through it, right on its surface, it looks like, okay, if I make God my primary desire, my primary pleasure, my primary delight, I'll get what I want, which will be him. If I make God my primary goal, I get him. That makes me think of in Hebrews, whoever would please God should believe that he is, and he's the, of the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So he wants to reward us with himself. But there was another way I was reading this, and I think this is also quite powerful. It was powerful for me. I looked at it and I said, the desires in my heart aren't all right. So maybe if I delight myself in the Lord, he'll give me new desires. I can tell you I've tested that and it's true. It's true. The more I delight myself in the Lord, the more I find my desires become more and more and more in line with him. So, another beautiful aspect of of what the Lord has done through his word. And it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them, so through holding to the promises of God. We may become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, that sounds like starting to look like Jesus, like partakers of the divine nature. So so wait a second. Does that mean that sometimes in certain aspects of my life, someone might, they don't see me, they see Jesus when they're looking at me? Because the divine nature is coming off of me, I'm actually partaking of it? Seems to point a little bit to that idea of Jesus becoming the Word made flesh, so we can become the Word made flesh. But it says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So part of how we leave the sinful desire is by holding to Jesus' promises, to the Lord's promises. Where do we find them, the most of them? Well, we find them in the Word. We find them in Scripture. Now, we can get them through prophetic words, but even those are ultimately still subject to what's already in the written Word. Those are secondary to it. So really, if we get this, this word in here, in our hearts, while well, I'm hitting the mic, sorry, uh, but if we get this in our hearts, we will start to find that we are able not only to already know, in most cases, what God's prophetic word is for another person. I'll tell you, most of the time, he starts bringing up scriptures for me. He starts bringing up things, and I'm like, gosh, that sounds so common. And he's like, yeah, because it's in my word, because I actually feel that way. You know, it's like man, this is like the 10th person that I'm prophesying over, and it's like, man, the Lord really loves you. And it's like, God, can I get something really novel? He's like, that is novel. It's novel to them because they don't know it. So when we look in his word, in his written word, we've actually got the ammo for us to shoot out prophecies with in ways we didn't even realize. It's not a big hocus-pocus thing. He's already made his heart known to us. So, I want to talk to you next about dedicating our minds to the Word. We were just talking about dedicating our desires to the Word. And I feel like we, we have walked through here, okay, here's how we do that. We, we need to start to really find out what, what His Word says. And that's actually directly part of dedicating our minds to the Word. So, to live this out, it's not enough that we just know about the Word, know what the Bible says. We've got to have a relationship with the Word, knowing the Word intimately. I know Matthew Esquivel talked a few weeks ago about Jean Guyon, and I love how she writes in, in her book, uh, "Encountering the Depths," experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. That the purpose of the Word is for us to have an encounter with Jesus, to actually encounter the Lord. And I, I remember uh, a couple times where I've used. Her, her sort of explanations of here's how you can pray through the Bible. And my wife would often do these workshops based on Psalm 23 where it would be like, okay, now we're going to pray, read the word. And okay, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, you know, starting out Psalm 23. And, and then there's this one way that Jean Guyon talks about praying the word where you, you read the word until you feel the presence of God. And there'd be times where I'd be reading the Lord okay, <laughs> I'm right there. I feel the presence of the Lord right there. Um, didn't really have to go very far because it's already there. His word is there as more than an invitation. This is a written open door to the heavens that we are able to just kind of reach our hand right in. And it's like, oh. And then we start to discover, oh, I was already there. I just didn't know it. I was already in the heavenlies because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. So... In terms of having this relationship with the Word, Paul actually told Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. Now, there's a number of, of aspects to this. Now, in one respect, it's reading it. And, and Paul actually talked with Timothy later in the same letter, and he's saying, look, I know you've been acquainted with, with Scripture since you were a kid. I know you've been reading this your whole life. You've been reading. Now, of course, Scripture at that time was mostly just the Old Testament, It's mostly just, you know, the the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs and and all this stuff and, and the histories. And so, Timothy's been reading this since he was a kid. But Paul also says that those scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Now, how many of you would like to be wise for salvation I mean, I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awesome, and I want that. <laughs> I, I want to know the wisdom of God's salvation. Well, okay, that wisdom is Jesus. I'll just, I'll, um, you know, spoiler alert. But, okay, that's very simple. That's, that's a great Sunday school answer, but there's so much more to that because there's so much to God's plans of salvation that have depth and layers that we could spend an eternity going over. Oh, we get to. Um but we could spend an eternity going over those things and never exhaust the heart of God and the wisdom of God and salvation. But there's access to that in the written word. There's access to this wisdom. Now, part of this also means, besides reading it, it means meditating on it, meditating on scripture. Now, in the Hebrew understanding of meditating on scripture, you meditate with your mouth, You actually talk about it. You speak it out. You remind yourself of it. So that takes me to my third aspect here of dedicating our mouths to the word. told you four different ways that we we walk in this of becoming the word, of, of who we really are as being the word. We dedicate our mouths to the word. Now, this is a really interesting thing. How many of you have, you have heard that one scripture? It's from this letter, 2 Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Just raise your hand if you've, you've heard that one. God has not given us, yeah, almost all of us. And normally, we think of that in terms of a spirit of fear, in terms of deliverance, and in terms of, uh, you know, someone who's just really afraid all the time and fearful. And, and I know for me, that was a powerful scripture. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But that scripture is not just about being set free from a tormenting spirit of fear. And again, I can tell you, I I remember being in college, and this is shortly after I got born again, and I'm standing in my dorm room and terror just starts coming over me. Now I've been used to this because for years that happened to me all the time. I couldn't stand being alone. I always had to have something on, TV, music, something had to be on because of how much fear had control in my life. And I can tell you, I remember, and I think this scripture actually came to my mind, and and terror starts coming over me, and I'm like, wait a second. This isn't right. This was a novel idea for me, by the way. This isn't normal. Wait, I don't have to feel this way. And I remember the Lord started to break that spirit of fear off of me in that time. I started to do stupid things afterwards, and I'd be like watching the scariest movies I'd always been afraid to watch, and be like, yeah, take that, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid. Um, I don't recommend that, by the way. <laughs> but um, this is actually about the Word. That scripture, it, okay, so everyone knows 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God gave us didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. Here's the next sentence. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He's saying, don't be afraid of the persecution that you see that's starting to stir up. Don't be afraid of what's happening even though it may cost you your life, preach the gospel. Even though it may cost you your freedom, preach the gospel. Even though it may mean that you're going to be beaten, you may be stoned, you may be not popular anymore. I think they're well past that at this point. Go and preach the gospel. They may not like you, but go and preach the gospel. Whatever reason we have had to fear that keeps us from wanting to go out and share the gospel. And I'm not talking about street evangelism, but maybe you need to do that to help break the fear off. I know I have to do it to break some of that fear off. All right? But I know that we all have the ability to preach the gospel in our work, in our home, when we're around friends. And I hope you've got some lost friends. I really do because that is so much a part of being a Christian is that we're able to develop relationships with lost people and we love them. It's not an agenda-focused relationship apart from my agenda is to love you until you know Jesus. That's an okay agenda. If the goal is to check someone off on our let's get them saved book, Oh, and then I'll love them afterwards. That's not it. But that's not a good agenda. But let's start with the agenda of I want this person to encounter Jesus. And the best way is for them to encounter Jesus through the word in me. And there are some situations where you can just straight up share the gospel with someone. And those are great. And that's what that's-I mean, that's why I even brought up street evangelism. That's why, I, you know, that is awesome and necessary. But most of our lives are not spent walking up to strangers and telling them about Jesus. Most of our lives are spent in, with the same people we work with day after day, with the same family members that we see day after day. How many of them know Jesus? Well, that means we have an opportunity through every aspect of our lives to share Jesus with them, to share the gospel. Yeah. So that's where Timothy is even told, preach the word, be ready at all times do it in season, out of season. So when it's convenient and when it's not convenient, preach it. Keep talking about it. And when I said earlier, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Now that word in Greek is uh, it's a derivative of martyr. The, the word in Greek for tes- testimony or uh, tes- uh, a witness is a martyr. And the testimony is what a witness gives. Don't be afraid to share your testimony. But by the way, testimony is tied in with laying down your life. And you know what? People are going to want to stop hearing it. There are people who just won't want to hear it. it, Paul even warns Timothy they're going to prefer myths over the truth. And he says, But be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Whatever's going on, keep talking about Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Everything I feel like in our culture is aimed at making us feel ashamed about being radically in love with Jesus. Somehow I'm going to come across as religious if I keep talking about how much Jesus means to me. Somehow I'm going to come across as a fanatic. You know what? Fine. Then call me someone who's lost his mind. Paul even said, look, whether we seem in our minds or out of our minds, whatever we're doing, it's because of the love of Jesus. For Christ's love compels us. And that word compels, there are two different ways you can look at it. One is it's as if it's arrested us and we're being dragged along. The love of God has just grabbed us and won't let go of us. And the other way to look at it is there's this uh, word uh, within that where it's like a cattle uh, squeeze and it forces the cattle to be pushed into this tighter and tighter and tighter spot and so they have to submit to whatever the people want to do to them. Normally it's giving them medicine or food. But in this case, it's like we're being put in this place by the love of God that I've got nowhere else to go. I've got to talk about Jesus. I can't help it. I've got to paint about Jesus. I've got to write about Jesus. I've got to tell jokes about Jesus. I've got to sing about Jesus. I've got to dance about Jesus. That's a totally healthy and normal thing for a person who is in love with the Word of God, who is in love with Jesus. Yes. But this also includes knowing when not to speak, when to avoid getting in what, what Paul told Timothy are fruitless discussions. That's getting in arguments with people who are not interested in actually finding the truth. They just want to argue with you. Okay, now it's interesting. Paul doesn't say cut them off and never talk to them again. He says, look, there's other ways they need to be witnessed to. That may not be the primary way, but there are other ways. There are some people that getting into an in-depth discussion is totally what they need, and there are others, they just need to see it coming off your life. They need to see every single aspect of your life saturated with the word, and this has to do with the last part I wanted to hit on, which is dedicating our bodies and our actions to the word. Now, when we dedicate our bodies to the Word, now, we start to embody the Word. We start to become a living evidence of the Word. And what do I mean by that? Well, for instance, in 1 John, I love how the New Living Translation puts it, Paul tells, uh, sorry, it's John, telling uh, telling the people reading this letter, he's saying, stop just saying that you love each other. Really show it by your actions. You see, having the word in our bodies means that we take action consistent with the word. Now, if Jesus is the word, there's something else we realize. Okay, so Jesus is the word. He's the word made flesh. Now, we also know that Jesus is God because, okay, it's the same thing. God is love. So ultimately, the word is pointing to love. That's what this comes down to is sacrificial love, pouring out of our lives, not just in word, but also in deed. So we talk about it, but we live it in our actions, sacrificially loving people when it doesn't even make sense anymore. You know, I've learned a lot about the homeless situation in America, and I even did an immersion at one point in Waco where we lived homeless for a weekend and uh, learned a lot about it. But I've I've also seen it from another side besides that where uh, my stepfather has worked with Alcoholics Anonymous and he brought me to a meeting and I got to see a lot of what was going on. It was at the Salvation Army. And so these are generally uh, people who are homeless and addicted to alcohol and they're coming in. And I've talked with my stepfather a lot about this and he's told me, man, if you give these people cash, they're just going to use it for drugs or booze. That's all they're going to do. But then there was something else I started to realize when I had that weekend where I lived homeless, and it was how unwelcome we were living as homeless people. There was no open doors for us. There was no churches we could even walk into to find a Bible in Waco. And it was just amazing to start to realize, okay, whatever the reasons are for this person being poor, whatever the reasons are for them being homeless, they still need the word. And there is that really important part In Isaiah, where it talks about the gospel being preached to the poor. And so whatever the reasons for the poverty are, still need access to it. Where are the open doors? And I started to just realize, and for myself, I was like, you know, if they ask me for money, I'd much rather give them a bag of food or a referral to a place that can help them, and I'll do that. But if all I have is five bucks on me, I'm going to give them the five bucks. Because you know what? I'm not responsible for what they do with it. They are but I'm going to show them in every way that I can that they are worth love and that there is a way out. Now, as we embody this, as we embody this love, as we embody the word of God, we have to realize it's going to make some people not happy. And you can instantly think, well, what being loving? Okay, I, I guess I can understand talking about Jesus, especially if you bring up he's the only way. But... Being loving? Well, here's, here's why. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, it's funny, before I came up here tonight, two different people prayed over me and prayed for piercing of the word. Well, that's what the word does. It pierces. And when a person is totally saturated with the word, it starts piercing hearts around them. They are basically like a giant Ginsu knife everywhere they go of the word, and it's cutting straight to the heart of people, just being loving, being happy, being joyful, even enduring suffering, even tearfully enduring suffering, but not letting go of Jesus. That starts cutting on people. It starts rubbing them the wrong way. Everyone's familiar with that phrase, right? Well, it's basically the same idea. It starts rubbing people the wrong way. So this is why Paul even warned Timothy, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Jesus is going to be persecuted. Now, I've heard that frequently preached in a negative sense. Well, if you're not getting persecuted, then you're not living for Jesus. I don't know, don't know why I went for that accent, but there you go. Um, but... There's definitely a sense in which, okay, when you're saturated with the word, some people are probably going to get uncomfortable. But you know what? We're all growing here. None of us has arrived necessarily. We're still wanting to go hard after God. But it's in this process of going hard after God, being saturated with Jesus, eventually don't get surprised when it rubs someone the wrong way. They're getting cut to the heart by the word. The word is is actually doing its work. And it may even be leading them to repentance. I don't know how many of you know the story of those missionaries who went to Ecuador. Five missionaries, I think this was in the 1950s. And they wanted to reach this tribe which no one had had much contact with. Uh, they're called the Warani. Um, at that time, they knew them as the Aka Indians. And all five of these missionaries were slaughtered by them. One of them even had a gun, and he, but he said, you know what, I'm not going to use it because uh, I know where I'm going when I die. But if I shoot one of them, I don't want to send them to hell. So they gave up their lives. Well, the sister of one, the wife of another, the child of one, all went to live with these same Indians, these, these South American Indians, after their husbands and brothers had been killed. And that tribe, most of it was led to the Lord. So this very thing that led to their own destruction or persecution, bodily destruction, was actually the thing that set these people free. In fact, it's said that after these men were killed, a whole chorus of angels appeared at the treetops singing. And this was a key part of the reason why that tribe was open to the gospel afterwards. So I'm just skipping ahead here to finish up. So I, I just uh, one last thing here uh, before I wrap up. You know it says in First John that whoever um, keeps the word of God whoever holds it tightly, whoever holds it close to themselves, who makes it the most important thing in their life, in him truly the love of God is perfected. I want to see the love of God made perfect in my life. And that requires getting to fall in love with the Word. But here's an interesting thing about this. So I've talked to you tonight about dedicating our desires to the Word, dedicating our minds to the Word, dedicating our mouths to the Word, and dedicating our bodies and our actions to the Word. So our desires, well, that can be, we could also say just dedicating our hearts to the Lord, dedicating our mind, dedicating our mouth. Well, you know, the mouth is interacting with the heart and your mind, and so really it's dealing with your whole soul And then your body, that's that's where your strength is, right? Physical strength. So it's basically dedicating your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You see, the word of God was made flesh so that we could become the word made flesh. So how does this happen? It happens through falling in love with Jesus, through Not just falling in love with him as the experiences of Jesus, and I love experiencing Jesus in worship and in prayer, but really wanting to get to know him. And he gave us his word, his written word, as a way for us to get to know him, what he's like. And that actually helps us then to determine remember what we were talking about with deceptive desires earlier? It helps us to recognize wait a second, that doesn't line up with what I know about Jesus. Maybe that isn't right, maybe that's not true. So the better we get to know his heart, his word, the better we get to know his heart. So I just want to invite everyone here to really just ask yourself this question and really talk to the Lord about it. It's this thing from one of the Psalms. David talking to the Lord. Lord, search my heart and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Specifically, are there any desires I've been going after, Lord, It's taken over a part of my heart that belongs to you? Is there anything that belongs to you? And instead of uh, letting that kind of become an open door for, for the enemy in your life to just get down and, and sad, and we're looking for conviction, not condemnation. Could you get the music playing over the speakers? Um, I really want to invite you to worship the Lord for a few minutes and just reclaim that part of your heart for Him and rededicate that part of your heart to Him. So just take some time and just ask the Lord, God, is there any part of my heart that's chasing after something that, man, it's just not as good as you, and it's taken over a place that belongs to you? All right. Lord, we we welcome you, God. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you love intimacy with us. So Lord, I ask you, stir us up to see you as you are, the perfect lover of our souls. God, you're a safe place. Open our eyes, Lord, to those things that are competing for your attention in our own hearts and help us to let go of those things and grab hold of you. Jesus name Amen